0: Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. Today's episode is brought to you by RARETome.com, an online antiquarian bookstore. From classic novels, literature, Bibles, and ancient illuminated manuscripts, to four-edge painting art, rare, antique, signed, out-of-print, first edition, autographed, and vintage books for sale, RarerTome.com sells it all. Before I introduce today's guest, I have two things to tell you. First off, if you enjoy the History of Vikings, then do me a favor and write me a review. I would love to hear your feedback. Secondly, you can always feel free to contact me with any episode ideas, guest suggestions, or inquiries. My email is noah at thehistoryofvikings.com. I'd also like to take this time to recommend a new history podcast. It is the History Time Podcast by my good friend Pete Kelly. Uh, Do be sure to check it out. And that is the History Time Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Professor CJ. He is the host of the Dangerous History Podcast, which I was a guest on. Highly recommend you check it out. And I'm really excited to get into our topic of discussion today, which is how to study history. And I think it's uh, very relevant for, obviously, myself as a history podcaster and all of you out there listening, all you uh, amateur historians and and history buffs. So, Professor CJ, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. My pleasure to be here. So you know, CJ, you're a, a professor of history. That's kind of your day job, if I'm correct. Is that right? Right. When going about studying history, any topic of history, whether it be Vikings, um, you know, the British Empire, um, you know, medieval things, ancient history, when going about studying history as a history professor, how do you go about that? That's kind of a, a you know massive question, but I mean. How do you prepare your podcast episodes? You know, like when you are studying a history for a, a dangerous history podcast episode. You know, especially in in later history when you know politics gets involved, there is definitely certain biases that you have to look out for. So, just in terms of you know broadening your sources, is there certain theories or concepts? I don't know. The great man theory is one of them uh, that I know you've talked about in the past. That we should watch out for when studying history.
1: Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of potential biases out there. Um, I would I would recommend that somebody look into just the overall concept of what's known as historiography, um, which, for those who don't know, is kind of the study of how historians have studied and written about and taught about history. So, what you find is that there's there's always going to be different schools of thought about various historical topics, and that over generations as as times change and as generations change and as new theories and new ways of interpreting things come along then things will shift and different different schools of thought will sort of come in and out of fashion and that sort of thing and you have to be aware of that when you're looking uh, particularly at a at an historical topic or time period or whatever for which there are a lot of uh, sources you know books and articles and things out there you have to be aware that these things, that these schools of thought exist and take them into account. Now, it doesn't mean that a book or an article that's coming from a particular ideological viewpoint or interpretive viewpoint about a subject is, quote unquote, false. It just means that you have to keep in mind that that there might be a certain bent to it, a certain... Um, kind of interpretive screen to it. And just kind of right off the bat, I, I would say that I'm, I'm sort of a relativist, but not a complete relativist. I'm a relativist in the sense that um, I think the past actually happened, but but I don't think that there is ever, could be, or that there ever has been such a thing as objective history, quote unquote, that history is always a reconstruction of what happened and that, and that the more abstract levels you get in your analysis, the more subjective it becomes because things like values come into play. So, you know, it's, it's always, people always have a tendency, especially if they've never really like, Studied and thought of these things at this level to to basically when they run into a, a history book or article that is from a different point of view than their own to say that it's false or to say that that's not the objective uh, version of it the version I believe in is the objective version and I'm a relativist in the sense of I don't think there is such a thing as objective history now that doesn't mean I don't believe that there are such things as facts but as soon as you start moving beyond the realm of measurable, relatively quantifiable sorts of facts, you start getting into the realm where the historian's ideology can't help but color even things like what sorts of topics they think are worth looking into or what sorts of sources in terms of primary sources the historian thinks is worth consulting or not worth consulting. So all of these things are inevitably going to be colored by the historian's ideology. And unfortunately, the way academia works has a tendency to, to produce a lot of groupthink and a lot of conformity where people just kind of reiterate the interpretive points of view that they were taught in graduate school. And then these things just kind of stick around for generations without a whole lot of um, internal critical thinking going on.
0: So what do you mean by you know, objective truth in history, because, um, could you just kind of break that down for maybe some listeners out there that are going like, wait, what? Like surely in 1066, you know, the battle of Hastings happened or on September 11th, 2001, the twin towers came tumbling down. Aren't those all ob- objective truths of history? Yeah, you know, I know you mentioned that you're obviously not, not opposed to facts, but sort of what's the distinction between a historical fact and an objective truth? Okay. Well, the, the way I think of it
1: is, um, I in, in how I think of it is that a fact is like a particular data point that can actually be pretty objectively verified, at least in principle. So um, things like, you know, oh, this battle happened on this day and this year, like that's something that assuming that you have lots of good historical sources, and and usually the further back you go in time the more it gets a little bit you know uh, uh shady but yeah. assuming you've got decent sources like you can verify you know when the battle of hastings happened to take that as our example but but then you know what is what does that mean right you can say oh this battle happened and that you know this side won the battle but then as soon as you want to go anywhere beyond that in terms of of your analysis like well, well, why? why? Why did the battle happen there and that way? Why did the side who won win? You know, as soon as you start getting, getting into analyzing causes and effects and then abstracting on to the level of what you might, for lack of a better term, think of as meaning, you know, okay, why did this battle happen this way? Why did the side win that won and the side that lost lose? And then what does this mean? Like, what what does this mean in the grander scope of the history of this particular time and place? And these sorts of questions, as soon as you start getting into those, those sorts of things that I think for most people who get interested in history in any way, those are the things that make history interesting. You know, part of the problem in my opinion of the way history is often taught in conventional school is it's just sort of taught as like a timeline, it's just sort of taught as like a laundry list of key terms and dates and this sort of thing and there's no there's nothing tying it together uh, in any meaningful way and that sort of thing. And as soon as you start getting to the level of of analyzing meaning and causes and effects you end up in a realm where it becomes harder and harder to have the same objective measures that you could have just questions like, okay, what day did this battle happen? And another thing um, in terms of how I look at this is that the so-called social sciences, which I have kind of some problems with that uh, terminology, but the so-called social sciences in most instances can never be as objective As the natural sciences and even the natural sciences are not as objective as as non-practitioners often think. But, you know, there are certain things that can be more or less objective. Like if you want to find out how two particular chemical elements react with each other, um, you can do an experiment and find out. And if you can repeat this experiment uh, and it turns out the same way every time, you can pretty much, you know, propose a pretty strong uh, uh, hypothesis that, you know, combine these two things and you're going to get this compound over here. And you can't do that in, in most instances in regard to social sciences because there are too many infinite and complex variables. And there's no way to, to control all the variables except for the one you're testing. And you can't run controlled experiments of time periods and civilizations that are gone, even things that happened a few years ago. You can't rerun, um, you can't rerun the 2016 election. To take an example and change a couple of variables and find out, you know, what does it do? And, and so, therefore, if to, to take this example, if you're writing a book about recent history and you're writing, oh, the 2016 election turned out the way it did because of variables X and Y, there's really no way you can, you can verify that in the same degree that, say, a physics
0: person, a, a physicist could, could verify a, a theory about physics. Gotcha, gotcha. That makes sense. Now, I'm curious before you mentioned and uh, this is quite obvious actually, um throughout history, there's been you know, certain schools of thought uh, or even dogmas, I would say, that have certainly influenced and shaped the way that we perceive historical events, not really limiting to one time period, but are there any like, Specific schools of thoughts, or or even you know um, dogmas, religious dogmas, political dogmas throughout history that have shaped in the most powerful way the way that we view history. Are there any ones that are exceptionally notable and that have been um, super powerful in controlling the way that we perceive history?
1: Um, one one that has been very powerful for maybe the last hundred and fifty years or so would be something like Marxism, where you have uh, this you know, kind of grand narrative that claims to be able to explain everything about how history has worked itself out up till now, and claims to be scientifically able to predict what's going to happen going forward. And so, um, you know, there's there have been Marxist historians ever since Marx, and that to me is an example of, of a particular um, kind of ideological schema that, you know some some Marxist uh, historians and intellectuals are more rigid and dogmatic about it. Others are a little bit more flexible about it. But in general, like that kind of gives you your your layout of what is history and what is it doing and where is it going. And um uh, you know, you mentioned religious uh, influences that's you know less of a thing amongst uh, professional historians in modern times who tend to be relatively secular as as individuals. But certainly throughout much of history, and even in some circles still today, you know, there's a lot of people who who still believe that a particular, you know, religious prophecy or whatever um, is is working itself out uh, going forward. And that things that happened in the past can also be plugged into um, explaining, you know, whatever the particular prophecy is. And, you know, then you've also got um for for lack of a better term let me, let me think how I want to put this i'm kind of losing my train of thought um you have people who um let their their nationalism color their view of history and so, you know, and and every country to some degree probably has this. I don't know. I've not studied the native historiography of a whole bunch of different countries around the world. But, you know, I would imagine at least to some degree that France has this kind of going on in French history, history um, and, you know, Russia and, and the UK and so on. But th- that's another thing that started a little bit earlier than Marxism, but has also been very influential the past 150, 200 years is is nationalism where people have, have these ideas about what, what their nation is and, and, and its past and where it's going. And very often they're kind of shoehorning the facts into what they want them to be to fit their, their, uh, their narrative. So, that's that's an, that's another example. I think nationalism, along with, uh, you know, another example being being certain religious ideas, and 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 Marxism being a third, and we could probably come up with with others as well.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. No, no, that that entirely makes sense to me. Another question I'll ask you is: Does the state control history as of today? Well, um,
1: I think to some degree it does, and how much it does it depends on where you are obviously to take an extreme example i think north korea uh has has history that you know in terms of what's taught at their schools and everything that is pretty clearly like directly state uh controlled top to bottom in in a relatively freer country like the united states or, you know, the countries of Western Europe or Canada or whatever, you know, so-called first world countries. The, the state influence on the teaching and and publishing and researching of history is less blatant and ham-fisted than in a place like North Korea. But in some ways, I think it's more effective because it's it's slicker, it's more subtle. And so you know if if you stop and think about the ways in which um the state can can influence history without going to the to the point of like overt censorship and all that but you know think about like how many colleges and universities are are state schools and then think about how many that are nominally private still are to some degree um, dependent on the state, whether it's you know government backed student loans or you know government um, grants and things like this. and then you also get to the level of you look at the big companies that control the major publishers and that control things like not that they do much history anymore, but they used to the history channel, you know, look into like what corporations own them, and you're at the level of these giant corporations that are often wedded at the hip to the state in various ways. And so you can, you can have a, a strong influence on the versions of history that are, that are getting into most people's heads. And, and then, you know, obviously um, I haven't mentioned it yet, but it's super important is how much uh, in, in the United States of K through 12 education is, is government controlled um, to one degree or another, obviously public schools, it's you know pretty strong. And so, you know things like standardized curricula and standardized textbooks then provide these sort of choke points where you can you can just you know for lack of a better term you can control what what versions of history get into the minds of the general public and what don't and the major publishers will often um you know exert a a powerful influence on what sorts of books they'll publish versus which sorts of books have to be published by small indie presses or self-published or whatever. And so you can Um, You know, if you're among the powerful classes in academia, in certain parts of the government, um, in certain parts of of the media that deal with things like history, uh, you can have a very, very strong steering effect on the overall narrative that's in the minds of most people. And it's it's one of those things where most people just don't understand that there are different schools of thought in different potential ways of looking at, at historical topics. Their view is whether it's explicit or just sort of unconsciously assumed by them. Their view is, Oh, that the version I was kind of taught while I was a kid growing up is quote unquote the truth. And that anyone who, who challenges that has something wrong with them. You know, they're, they're of a a scary alien ideology or they just, you know, hate my country or whatever it is. So. There's, there's a, there's a lot of that going on. And then you add in the fact that human beings tend to, most people tend to be kind of group thinkers and tend towards, um, conformity, especially with conformity with, with the views and the behaviors that will get them promoted. And so if you can just make sure that most of the people in conventional academia all kind of, maybe they don't agree with each other a hundred percent on everything, but their disagreements are within a relatively narrow little spectrum, a relatively minor little um, kind of reservation within which they can disagree, but that they are pretty much on the same page about a lot of fundamental uh, assumptions and beliefs, then in a way the the state doesn't have to very often directly intervene because once you kind of have this sort of a thing up and running, people will tend to conform. If you know that, you know, if you if you hold certain beliefs and present history through a certain lens, it will get you good jobs and get you promoted and get you prestige and so on. And that if you raise certain topics, ask certain questions, it will have the opposite effect on your career. People are going to, you know, People won't sit down and go. Well, I better pretend to believe stuff that I don't believe and make a thirty-year career writing stuff I don't really believe in because I want to get promoted. People are very good at conning themselves unconsciously into thinking that their real beliefs actually are by by a great coincidence uh, the sorts of beliefs that will get them promoted and get them the good jobs.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more, and I think that was really beautifully said. I know this. My podcast, obviously focuses on Vikings and, and Scandinavian history. Um, but, you know, over 60% of my listenership comes from the United States. So um, I think as as amateur historians and, you know, even as professional historians, I think that looking into this, uh, just a segue uh, for, for a brief moment would actually be quite beneficial when uh, broadening our minds in search of truth and, and how to study history in a uh, excellent way. What do you think – I know you cover U.S. history pretty extensively on your podcast, uh, the Dangerous History Podcast. You know, as an individual and as a free thinker such as yourself, in in your opinion, what do you think is probably the biggest misconception or lie that people have been sold, you know, we as U.S. citizens, regarding U.S. history?
1: Hmm. That that's a that's a tough one because I'm of the opinion that so much of, um of the of the history that people are walking around within their head, uh, if they're Americans and and they, they know a little American history, it's probably uh, deeply flawed. Um, I I think it's it's the overall view. Uh, if I had to kind of make a big picture sort of thing that a lot of particular little stories and topics and subjects could fall under it's it's the overall view that the u.s government and the politicians who have been involved in running it and the elites who have been connected with it um that they've generally been quote-unquote Good that they've been generally benevolent and trying to do the right thing, uh, both for the common people in America and for humanity as a whole. Um, This basic idea that that the United States government is generally the good guy, and yeah, occasionally it makes mistakes, and you know does does a few mistakes that have some negative consequences here and there, but in general, it's just trying to do good, and mostly it does good. Um, I think that that's a that's a big enough umbrella that you could fit lots of the sorts of particular subjects that I cover under it in terms of, you know, nasty things the CIA has done. And, you know, uh, wars that that uh, I I think most reasonable people would say were not justified or or particular decisions that, you know, had horrific consequences. So, yeah, I, I think
0: that's that's how I would I would answer that question. Before we hear more from Professor CJ, let's take a brief moment to hear a word from our sponsor, RareTome.com. RareTome.com specializes in collectible and antiquarian books. They have seven centuries of books in their shop. The earliest is from 1498. They have forge-edge paintings, signed works, books with provenance, fine bindings, classic literary works, rare books, and first editions. From classic novels, literature, Bibles, and ancient illuminated manuscripts to 4 edge painting art, rare, antique, signed, out-of-print, first-edition, autographed, and vintage books for sale, Raretome.com has it all. They sell worldwide and are located in the beautiful Willamette Valley of Oregon. Be sure to check out RaretomeBooks.com for all your collectible and antiquarian books. Again, that's Raretome.com. And if I may just ask a sort of broad question... Um, you know a lot of people I'm trying to word this in a way that makes sense but I think people if, if people can understand what I'm getting at I think you'll know what I'm talking about like people tend to look history as like um history is the you know um, the story of mankind's stupidity or, or history is uh, made up of nothing but wars and violence and bloodshed and it's basically the history of um, you know people rising to power and slaughtering millions of innocents if we look at history you know the history of mankind the history of human beings in retrospect what is it the history of is it is it the history of these these beings trying to um you know becoming smarter and smarter and smarter and in, in search of truth is it the history of of just utter violence and and chaos or or what is you know what I mean? Like I don't really know how to ask this question, but if we look at human history in retrospect, yeah, what do we get? I,
1: I, I think I I think I get what you're what you're getting at with that question, and I think that any kind of clear cut, straightforward answer to it is is going to be flawed or going to be you know very much not um, not complete because there's a whole lot of ways in which there has been significant quote unquote progress. In terms of uh, people's physical circumstances and how long people live, how comfortable people are, et cetera. I mean, obviously, uh, if you think about it for a minute or do a tiny bit of research, it quickly becomes obvious that you'd rather be a person that's like on the poverty line in a modern day first world country than you would be like to be a, a king Um you know, just five, 600 years ago, let alone even further back in terms of your, your basic uh, comfort of your daily life. I mean, if you go back, Kings used to be covered in fleas and parasites and, you know, going to the bathroom in their chamber pots and they're catching the plague like everybody else, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. when, when people ask me like, oh, what's the, what time in history would you want to live? My answer is always, well, now, Um, unless I could maybe go even further into the future, into a place when things are even better, but I don't know if, you know, if such a place will exist or not, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy that we have modern medicine and, um, all the different technologies, you know, I, I live in Florida, so I'm very, very thankful for air conditioning. I I think that's, that's pretty, pretty awesome. Um, you know, uh, most of us would, would be dead by the time we got to be 20, if not for modern medicine. Uh, so on the one hand, there's all that good stuff. On the other hand, there's been bad stuff the whole time. And there's the, there's the potential, uh, because so much of our technology and innovation is potentially a double-edged sword, there's the potential that some of the very things that we've developed that have made our lives better – could also potentially, uh, whether on purpose or, or by some accident be used, um, or, or, you know, cause some sort of negative results. So, you know, we've got all these great technologies, but we also have, you know, weapons of mass destruction and more effective ways of slaughtering people. You know, the 19th century was the cent was the, the century of so much innovation and industry and so on. And then ultimately what ended up happening was that all that innovation was used in, in world war one to slaughter tens of millions of people. So, It's kind of both. It's kind of both, you know, positive progress, but also potential danger and and frequent kind of relapses into barbarism. And, you know, my own view for what it's worth is that what often tends to happen is that the people who tend to be the most effective at climbing the hierarchies of power, um, particularly within – within a modern state, but also within certain types of the corporate world that they're the worst sorts of people in a lot of ways that if you, if you think about the characteristics of a psychopath, um, not the, not the kind of popular conception that it's a crazy guy screaming and waving a knife, but, but a real psychopath, you know, this, this consciousless person, but who's very cunning and calculating and often very charming and smooth, um, if you if you list the characteristics of, of a psychopath and you list the characteristics of a consummate politician, they're pretty close to identical. And so while I'm not saying that everybody who finds their way into a position of power is a psychopath, I'm saying that I think more of them are than we like to think, and um, that even those who are not end up having to behave in some of those ways in order to kind of uh, get along within those systems. So I think part of what's going on is – is that you've got on the one hand you've got the history of the average person, um, then you've got the history of the people in power. And when people think about all the wars and, and atrocities and genocides and whatever, typically what's going on is you're looking at the results of the decisions made by the people in power. While at the same time, there's probably lots of average people in that society who are just, you know, doing their doing their jobs, trying to take care of their family, trying to provide for the. Um, you know, their sustenance and all that sort of thing. You know, there's there's this difference between if you're looking at the, the Roman Empire, if you're looking at the emperors, you know, fighting each other and and uh, slaughtering each other and whatever. And then look at the average person who's just trying to, like, run a business or or run a farm or whatever. And while the two spheres bump into each other, usually to the detriment of, of the the kind of common person. Um, it's a very different history. It's a very different history. So it's kind of my long story short. My answer is it's kind of both things at once.
0: So, you know, CJ throughout history, you know, we kind of talked about how there's the history of the average man, the average guy, the average Joe, and then there's the history of the people in power, um, the people or even institutions, I would say that sort of rule over those people. Um, uh, You know, there's millions of examples. Uh, The Catholic Church uh, for many years just had unbelievable amounts of power over people's lives. Uh, Certainly the feudal system. And then, you know, as time goes on later and later, um, more governments and et cetera, et cetera. Now, I'm curious, is history shaped by those people in charge? Is history the history of I want to say like great men and women, but um, it depends how you define great. Is history is our history as human beings the history of those powerful people and institutions that um, controlled our lives? Uh, to a large extent,
1: it is at least what most people think of as as history. So, part of it is just the natural result of the fact that. The the powerful tend to leave the most historical record. So if you want to know about ancient Egypt, there's a lot more um, existing sources that have to do with what the pharaohs and other high up officials and priests and whatever were doing. And so it's a lot easier. And, and they left more physical evidence for people like archaeologists to go and find and analyze and try to learn from. Whereas it's a bit trickier, it's not impossible, but it's a bit trickier to get a really good view of what the life was like for an average, just random ancient Egyptian person. You end up having to, to kind of read between the lines more and so on. So part of why history is that way is just the, the default result. I mean, even think about it today, there's going to be a lot more stuff both written sources and otherwise that is generated and that survives you know through the centuries about presidents and prime ministers and kings and all that as opposed to the average random middle or working class person but part of it also is i think that the people in charge want to have the people over whom they rule Um, believe in them and believe in their legitimacy to be in charge and all that. I think if you go back to some of the earliest real kind of stabs at history that were written, they were typically by people, what we would think of as court historians, people who are basically on the payroll of the pharaoh or the king or whoever, and they're writing the histories of the pharaohs and the kings. And wouldn't you know it, they're writing it in such a way that the pharaoh is always you know, the good guy and um, he's – Always, you know, in charge for good reason, whether it's because of the gods or because he's so smart and wise or whatever it is. So, this um, starts off as something called the Alliance of Throne and Altar. This is something I did a um, a podcast on long time ago, pretty early in my show. And so, very often, the people who are writing these court histories are, to some degree or another, religious officials. And there's this symbiotic relationship that occurs in early civilizations where you have the alliance of throne and altar. Now, in some cases, you have an outright theocracy where the religious officials are literally the same people as the quote unquote government, but More commonly, these start to evolve in a complex society as different things, but they're allied together and they have a symbiotic relationship. And basically, what the religious officials offer to the secular ruler, the king or whatever, is legitimacy, They can tell the people, and most of the people will seem to believe, that the guy who's in charge is in charge because he is a god or because the gods put him there or he's buddies with the gods or whatever it is. And so it's not just that people should obey the king because he's got a bunch of tough guys with swords who are standing behind him. It's that, but also that the king is you know, divinely ordained or whatever. And in return, the the secular ruler of the king or whatever can offer – A protected monopoly status to to those religious officials. In other words, like use his his powers to make sure that other religions are not allowed to uh, compete in the the marketplace of ideas. And also, he can offer the religious authorities things like uh, tax breaks, maybe a cut of his his loot uh, that that he takes in from taxes or that he gets from conquering people or whatever. So there's this symbiotic relationship. The the the. Priest offers the king legitimacy, the king offers the priest protection and and goodies and that sort of thing. And what seems to have happened as you get um particularly to the last hundred to two hundred years, when people, um, particularly those who are who are kind of elites, are often more secular you end up still having a same the same kind of relationship only instead of the the altar part of the alliance of throne and altar uh being being religious officials more and more they are secular intellectuals they are quote unquote academics you know professors and people at think tanks and all these sorts of things and uh, uh, professional uh, academics and whatever and they can still offer the modern nation state even if it's a allegedly democratic republic type thing they can still offer it legitimacy they can still um write books and 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 produce content and teach classes that basically say you know um you should obey the the, the government maybe not because it's divinely ordained anymore but because it represents the will of the people and the common good of the nation and all these sorts of things and so they're they're um, you know offering legitimacy to the ruling class while the ruling class is able to, you know, give them cushy, good paying jobs at uh, state universities and other sorts of goodies, and also is able to um, the, the state can use its power to, protect the monopoly status or quasi monopoly status of those professionals. So the state can establish things like accreditation and say, you know, only people who have gone through this process and have these particular qualifications are allowed to teach history or economics or political science or whatever it is. So you still get this, this symbiotic relationship only it's secular intellectuals more and more in the past couple hundred years uh, and and gradually less and less so um, religious intellectuals. But it's the same basic relationship. And to to circle it all back around to your question, I think that relationship is also part of the reason why uh, history is so often looking more at the kings and the generals and the presidents. Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Now, um i know you have certainly done this to an extent on your podcast but if if somebody tried to i don't know how this would work like maybe a massive like you know 200 volume encyclopedia or something but if somebody tried to organize a history of the individual basically uh, or even just looking at history from the the standpoint of individuals and by individuals i don't just mean the people, like we talked about, who were you know the rich and powerful, the people making decisions and recording history, but I mean the people, you know, the medieval peasants, the the farmers, the factory workers of the industrial revolution, etc. Is there any like individuals throughout history that you greatly admire, sort of who are your your biggest inspirations as a historian? who are who are your favorite historical figures?
1: Hmm. Well that's a that's a a good question and not a real simple one to answer. I think I tend to like people who will speak truth to power and who will say what they believe to be right and true, regardless of what the majorities around them think, and regardless of what the the rulers of their society think. And so I'm a fan um in various ways. Of, I mean, if you want to go way back, I'm I'm a fan of um, the the Chinese Taoist sages, you know, Lao Tzu, uh, Chuang Tzu, and so on. I think they they did this to to some degree in their own way. Um, I'm a, a fan of um, some of the the prophets uh, in the Old Testament who were that way. Um, you know, and these are, these are not even necessarily always people whose content I agree with, but people who, who were willing to, um, you know, think about what they, what they really thought to be right and true and to take a stand on it. Um, the, the historical figure of Jesus would fit that as well. Uh, some of the, the classical philosophers I would put into this category. I'm a big fan of Socrates. I think Socrates is, um very, very interesting. And especially when you try to, to get away from the way that Plato depicted him and, and try to figure out who he really was. Um, he's, he's a very interesting guy and someone I have a lot of admiration for. Uh, some of the other ancient Greek and Roman philosophers as well. And moving into to more modern times, the people I tend to... Um, I, I tend to personally, because of my own values, have the most affection for are people who are um, taking a stand against things that not only are um, in my view, oppressive or wrong, but that were virtually unquestioned by most of the people in that society. so the um the American abolitionists, you know, before slavery, it's very easy to be anti-slavery after it's gone and it takes a lot more courage when like 90% of everybody including in the north thinks it's perfectly fine um it takes a lot more courage then when like literally you might get lynched in the north for being an abolitionist um and and then getting into modern times a lot of uh, anti-war activists and anarchists and people like that are the sorts of people i i tend to um have the most affection for you know i've i've done things on my show um, I, I call them DHP heroes. And I always say, um, or try to remember to say in one of those episodes that, you know, I'm I'm not a fan of the general sort of hero worship that people tend to do. Um, so I I'm kind of using that term DHP heroes, uh, Dangerous History Podcast heroes, sort of tongue-in-cheek in a way, but nonetheless, I I try to feature individuals that I think were more um, more good than bad, and while while I might not agree with everything they said or did, um, I think that they they had some some moral courage and so on. So, uh, I've I've done one of those on uh, Smedley Butler, who who was um, during his lifetime the most decorated. A United States Marine in American history, and then once he retired, became an outspoken activist against um, a lot of America's wars and foreign policy, and the the what we would call today the military industrial complex. And I've done um, DHP heroes on uh, Lysander Spooner, who was a nineteenth century American anarchist and abolitionist, who who I'm a fan of, and on most things, um, Carl Hess, a twentieth century American uh anarchist and anti-war guy who um you know paid for some of his beliefs and so on. So those are the types of people that I I tend to um be fans of and not so much the the so-called great presidents and and great kings and emperors and generals and all that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah no that's absolutely fascinating and a, an interesting way of looking at it. Um, I've always loved reading you know, um I don't know what you'd call them diaries, memoirs um, of of different people, but especially um, you know, individuals like books like All Quiet on the Western Front and various uh, diaries kept by um, immigrants coming to the United States um, during the that would have been the late nineteenth century when there was sort of that flock of immigration coming to America, and you know people wanting to establish shops and in a new life. That's always been fascinating to me. Um, just the history of of individuals is something that there's not nearly enough content on, and I don't know if there ever will be, unfortunately.
1: But yeah, yeah, there's always going to be a shortage of primary sources just because people like that leave less of a paper trail and all that. But certainly, you know, when you're able to, when when there are Diaries or letters or other sources where you can really get a window into a quote unquote average person's life. Um, it certainly is is interesting and definitely worth looking into.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's such an eye opener and it's just absolutely incredible. My last question to you is this: is I mean, it's kind of a natural human thing that um, people like to organize and form collective groups. I mean, there can be great benefit in this. I mean, if you go back to you know the era of the cavemen, um, if there was a bunch of cavemen you know looking to kill a giant, um, I don't know what are those things called woolly mammoth, um, obviously you'd need four or five guys instead of just one to take it down. And um, when you're establishing you know cities and towns, that's sort of a collective effort. Are there any individuals that have risen to power throughout history that have done so in an individual way um, in that they didn't leverage collective groups or or dogmatic institutions? Uh, it was, you know, they perhaps uh, notable entrepreneurs that, um, you know, they didn't uh, have government subsidies or anything. They actually used their own individual mind and power to um, become successful. Is there any people like that throughout history that are exceptionally notable? Yeah, there's a lot of
1: them. And I think, um, you, you were right to raise entrepreneurs as a sort of category where you'll find uh, people like that. Now there are, there are people who, um, you know, become wealthy entrepreneurs because they're good at playing the political game and they're good at getting the government to give them subsidies and things, as you alluded to, and to um, get the government to put barriers in the way of their competition. And I'm no fan of those people. Um, And then there are people who who rise just by providing customers with goods and services or whatever that the customers are happy to voluntarily vote for and, and pay for. And you know, I I think those people are um, generally admirable, especially when the things that they're doing are like really having a positive benefit for, for a lot of people. Um, And then there are some people that kind of start off one way and go the other. There are some entrepreneurs who start off as, as like truly free market entrepreneurs, just doing well because they're, they're being innovative and they're running their business well, and they're giving the customers what the customers want. And then um some of them become successful and at that point they kind of switch to being more of a political entrepreneur and then they then suddenly they don't like um you know genuine market competition anymore suddenly they want uh, the the government to regulate things and whatever um so yeah there are there are there are entrepreneurs like that um to a large extent uh James J Hill who was a railroad entrepreneur in the late 19th century um you know people can read read the book uh, myth of the robber barons to get um some of his story um there was another there was a um there was an African American entrepreneur whose name I'm blanking on, who I found out about when I was doing research for my um American slavery series um a couple of years ago and man, I can't remember what the heck his name was, but I believe he had been born a slave and then had either escaped or had been lucky enough to be one of those slaves where he had an opportunity to earn a little money on the side and eventually buy his own freedom. And then he became um, a sail maker in, I want to say Philadelphia, but I could be wrong on that. I think it was Philadelphia. And he, um, he, not only became like a master sale maker, but he innovated, like he, you know, figured out ways to make sales that were better and cheaper and so on. You know, I, I can't remember if he, if he was, you know, doing some early kind of industrial automation or whatever it was, but he was innovative. He became a very successful and wealthy guy uh, in his community who was greatly respected by, you know, black and white people. And, also he um donated a significant amount of his money to American abolitionist movements. He was a supporter of of things like the American Anti-Slavery Society and and these sorts of things. So, I mean there's a guy who 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 literally started as a slave was able to figure out a way out of that and then was able to become wealthy and respected um as far as i know not by cheating anybody or screwing his competition or anything but just by doing a good job and providing a, a very you know if you think about it sales were the the engines of of the 19th century and not only that he was able to um you know, use some of his wealth to for a cause that he believed in and that most people in the modern era uh agree with as well of of opposing slavery. And, you know, um when he died, it was a big deal, like the the whole city practically seemed to come out and, and uh and, and mourn him and so on. And it's a shame after all, all that, that I remembered about him. I I'm blanking out on the guy's name, but um Like I said, it was a couple of years ago that I, that I did this, but you know when when you bump into people like that in historical research, um, it's always a treat. you know you find out about some person you've never heard of before, and then you find out they actually had this really cool life um, and and in many ways, I consider a person like that to be um, far superior to the average president or general or prime minister or what have you.
0: Absolutely, that's fascinating. That's a fascinating way of looking at it, and really brilliant words. Um, absolutely, uh, Professor CJ, thank you so much for joining me um, on this episode of the History of Vikings. Uh, I thought it was, um, I thought it would be a great idea to sort of uh, take a break from the usual Vikings and and just for a moment have this discussion as um, you know armchair historians or, or whatever you'd like to call yourself, and and really you know, sort of seek after truth and, and look at different ways uh, that history can be studied. But thanks again for joining me, uh, CJ.
1: Oh, you're welcome. It's been my pleasure. Um, Thanks for all your kind words. And, you know, I I hope uh, I've given your listeners just something to think about. I don't claim to have the final answers. Um, I, I just hope that I am able to, to kind of raise questions and get people thinking.
0: Yes, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. That's very important. If you enjoyed this episode of the History of Vikings, do me a favor and write me a review. You can always feel free to contact me. My email is noah at thehistoryofvikings.com. Thank you all so much for listening today. Join us right here next week on the History of Vikings.